0: This podcast is brought to you by Reynolds & Reynolds, the industry leader in automotive technology. Learn more about Reynolds' online retailing approach by visiting rayray.com forward slash retail anywhere. That's RUI, dot slash retail anywhere.
1: Welcome to Daily Drive for Tuesday, August 9th, 2022. I'm your host, Jamie Butters, Executive Editor of Automotive News. And I'm Kellen Walker. Today on the show... LMP's
2: liquidation plan. Ford hikes the price of the F150 lightning, and Mazda is also looking at higher prices to make up for lost production. Plus, it's getting tougher to forecast what's ahead for the auto industry. We'll hear from our own Lindsey Chapel about why that is. Let's run through all the news you need to know to keep up
1: in the auto industry. The Board of LMP Automotive Holdings has unanimously backed a plan to liquidate and dissolve the company. It's recommending that stockholders approve the proposed plan. Meanwhile, the publicly traded auto retailer has agreed to sell what looks like most of its remaining franchise dealerships. It's not clear if LMP is selling the six dealerships in one transaction or in multiple deals. LMP says closing is expected in October. The company hasn't reported financial results for the fourth quarter of 2021 or the first or second quarters of this year. It is said it will restate financial results for the first three quarters of 2021, and the company faces a possible class action lawsuit. LMP stock, which topped $20 less than a year ago, closed at $673 a share on Friday, before jumping 14% to $769 on Monday. Management said the liquidation plan should pay out about $11 a share. The cost of a new Ford F-150
2: Lightning just got a bit steeper. Ford is boosting the price as much as 17%, citing rising material cost. That amounts to $6,000 to $8,500 across all trims. The entry-level Pro Trim gets the biggest percentage price hike. It's now about $48,700, including a shipping fee of almost $1,800. The Lightning starting price of under $40,000 was a key marketing point that Ford touted at the vehicle's launch but executives have warned that price increases would be coming. Rising commodity costs have wiped out early profits on the Mustang Mach-E and other electric vehicles. Ford is reopening order banks for current reservation holders. It says the price hikes do not affect order holders who are waiting for their deliveries.
1: Soaring costs for materials are also causing Mazda to pursue more price increases in North America. The Japanese automaker says U.S. demand was robust enough to support the price hikes. Mazda has already raised prices as much as $350 this year and expects price increases again with new model introductions. Mazda is betting on an upmarket portfolio shift that hinges on a global blitz of new large crossovers that follow the CX50. The strategy will begin unfolding this year in Europe and Japan, with the launch of the two-row CX60, North American sales plunged in the second quarter on pinched production, but Mazda expects regional volume to increase for the full year. For the fiscal first quarter that just ended, the company reported an operating loss of $143 million, but including the benefits of the weaker yen, it earned a net income of $110 million. An online
2: used vehicle retailer, Vroom, says it cut over 300 jobs and sold far fewer vehicles in the second quarter. This is part of the business realignment strategy it announced back in May, which is partially aimed at cutting expenses. Vroom also says it closed offices in New York City and Detroit and shuttered several used car buying centers in Texas as part of that plan. Vroom reported a second quarter net loss of over $115 million, that's smaller than its $310 million net loss in the first quarter, but larger than its $66 million loss a year ago. And those are today's headlines. Jamie, a lot of gloomy financial news today, job cuts, price hikes. Is this all
1: related? And if so, tell us what is happening. You know, the economy is giving us a a lot of mixed signals these days, right? We're seeing higher prices on, on goods, higher prices for labor, so, you know, the companies that face a lot of demand, they can raise their prices too. That's We're seeing some of that. Those that can't, they're having to cut, cut some costs. And a lot of times that means jobs. So that's, uh, that's where we're at. It's, uh, there's a lot of volatility and everyone's trying to find their way. And on top of all the financial
2: uncertainty, it's also getting tougher to figure out what's likely to hit the industry in the future. We'll talk about that more next on Daily Drive.
0: Customer wants to sign documents remotely? No problem. Customer wants to provide documentation and their driver's license in person? No problem. Customer wants to have their vehicle delivered? No problem. There are a lot of steps to complete a car deal, but what happens when customers start online and end in-store, or vice versa? You need a seamless, consistent process to start work and finalize every vehicle purchase, no matter where the customer is. Chris Walsh, president of Reynolds & Reynolds, explains how. Retail Anywhere is is powered by the retail management system, so the retail management system is the engine that, you know, that kind of makes this all work, and it's based on the premise that customers can be anywhere, right? They can be in store, they can be at home, they can be a hybrid of both. It doesn't really matter, but it's a single process of interacting with that customer, and that's you know really important to be consistent in that way, and it's only achievable through a single system like the retail management system, regardless of where the customer is buying from and how. Retail Anywhere focuses on streamlining dealership operations and improving profitability. For more information about this holistic approach to digital retailing, visit rayraycom forward slash retail anywhere. That's R-E-Y, R-E-Y dot com slash retail anywhere.
1: Welcome back to Daily Drive. I'm Jamie Butters with Kellen Walker. It's been one thing after another for the auto industry over the past couple of years. Chip shortages... Russian invasion of Ukraine, COVID lockdowns, all these things are stifling plans and forcing companies to cut costs. Our guest today wrote that for economists and analysts employed in the dark science of forecasting, the times are just nuts. Automotive news editor Lindsay Chapel and reporter John Irwin wrote about it on the front page of our latest print edition. Lindsay and I talked about the story as well as their coverage of the Center for Automotive Research's annual management briefing seminars in northern Michigan last week. Here's our conversation. Lindsay Chappell, welcome back to Daily Drive.
3: Thank you. Good to be here.
1: You were just up at the management briefing seminars last week up by Traverse City. It's it's always been a great event, a great way to get away, gain some perspective, try to see the industry maybe a little more clearly. But the forecasters and analysts you spoke with seemed kind of lost in the fog or something like groping for trees, just trying to figure out which way is up. What's what's going on?
3: Everyone, really. I mean, it's not just the, the forecasters and the economists. It was also the executives we spoke to hmm. uh, they profess they know what they're doing they're no, they know how to run their business but they're saying if only if only we they could get some stability in order to think about planning you, you forget about that we tend to think I think in the auto business that things move along a pace you just keep pedaling the bicycle but in fact, You know, I think we forget sometimes, or at least we underappreciate the fact that you kind of need to know what the next six to 10 months are going to look like so that you can have your ducks in a row. And that's what they're lamenting is the fact that it's been so hard for the last two years to see through the
1: fog. Well, you know, we've covered... You and I both covered this industry a long time, and it's hard enough for these big companies and their supply chains to adapt just to, you know, the right semi-regular and predictable ebbs and flows of the economy. Just when, you know, it's growing or it's, we have a recession and then a recovery. And right now, I mean, this COVID time, right, has been a wild roller coaster. Just we shut down immediately. And then it's like, oh, there's amazing amount of consumer demand. And then you know, and then production gets hard and we lost, don't have enough chips and inventory is tight. And when we think we're going to get all the chips and then we don't get all the chips and then we have a war in Ukraine. It's been so many surprises that have come so suddenly that it's not anything like the stability that the industry really thrives on.
3: Yeah. There was a great comment from Bob Young at Toyota. He said, you know what, We can live without selling 17 million units for a long time. Just give us some stability so that we can plan and have some vision into where we're going. You know, I mean, you you think even the, the catastrophe of 2008, 2009, where people were shutting down plants and laying off people. They at least knew that that's what was happening, and they could they could adjust accordingly. I mean, it was painful, you know, to have to lay off thousands of workers. Of course, but at least that became the new reality. Is that here is where our tent is now staked, and we can move forward from this one. As you were saying a second ago, you don't know what's going to happen right now from month to month.
1: Well, one of the stories that caught my eye, uh, our colleague John Irwin uh, wrote a piece about a panel discussion on how we often think of advanced driver assistance systems as building blocks for automated driving, right? They can help you steer, they can, they can brake, they can do some navigating, but the people who actually have to make them and design them say they're really very different problems. Tell me about that.
3: Yeah. I think we're seeing an inkling of a, uh, a divergence uh, perhaps that until now, the industry has been maybe moving along in lockstep thinking we're going to get to driverless transportation and the way to get there is through adas this is step one there's step two there's step three but the way you get there is adas and i think what you heard last week and traverse city was an emergence of a thinking that they're really going in two different directions not one direction but you know one of them Is to simply provide advanced safety, even with a distracted driver or a driver who doesn't have his hands on the steering wheel. The other one is really toward a longer path of driverless transportation, and ADAS isn't necessarily going to work on both of those uh, directions.
1: Yeah, I think what uh, what I was reading, picking up on, you know, it's the ADAS systems are smart little pieces of of helpers, but it all still feeds back to the human driver. And that is the fundamental irreplaceable part of any level one or level two system. But if you go to level four, the real focus is recreating that human that synthesizes and integrates all of the the inputs and the into getting to the destination.
3: Yeah, yeah. That, that was sort of the sense of the conversation, I think, in MBS is, are we really talking about recreating the human? That's what they were saying is not necessarily replacing, but are we looking at the task of recreating the human? Maybe that's not appropriate for a passenger vehicle with you and your family.
1: It seems to work well for playing chess
3: yeah <laughs>
1: yeah or In jeopardy or, maybe right yeah,
3: yeah. Or, or moving a a box of Amazon goods to a, a warehouse, something utilitarian. But, you know, can we really do it for human beings?
1: I was going to say, so, I mean, speaking of that idea of like questioning what can be done and and whether it's how desirable it really is, uh, you reported on a, a AAA executive who said most people don't really want automated driving yet.
3: Right. They, they want safer vehicles uh everybody agrees well not everybody but but almost everybody agrees that they want (laughs) a safer vehicle but do they want to be able to sit in the car as we've been saying for the last decade or so and read a newspaper uh they do not they do not want that and I don't think that's going to to sway the industry one way or the other but it is a reminder from somebody with 62 million members uh, across the United States is that, you know, there there's pushback on this idea that this is a path that maybe is still under discussion. You know, the ideas of passenger car versus fleet vehicles, you know, are, are really two different conversations. And we, I don't think we paid a lot of attention in the early days of these discussions a few years ago to How important the fleet part of this would be trucks on making deliveries or even trash pickup or whatever. That that is a huge segment of the transportation industry.
1: Yes, absolutely. It is uh and and that's where so many of the breakthroughs, especially those that need scale, may come in first, right? So we're kind of seeing with limited automated driving, maybe some of the even some of the green tech, especially fuel cell hydrogen powered vehicles probably are going to work better in those fleets on the front end before they really work for you and me to park in our driveway. Right,
3: right. I think this is going to play out a little more in in the next few years and the boardrooms of automakers and also suppliers of which market are we specifically talking about? What are we really pursuing? And for what customer, what evidence do we have that customers want this versus that? which customer is it? Is it the passenger vehicle buyer or is it the corporation that needs to buy 500 trucks?
1: Well, and maybe even if it's not just the consumer who would buy a vehicle, maybe it's the person who, you know, hires an Uber now or takes a taxi or takes a subway or a bus and you're creating a vehicle for that person, which maybe is still more like a fleet, uh, but it demands answers to all of those questions. (laughs) Like you said, who is it for? What, how are they going to use it? Uh, Who's going to maintain it? Who's going to pay for it?
3: Yeah. And I I think that um, in fairness uh, to the AAA, they made it clear that this is something that the, the technology needs to be pursued. We need to have this. We need to know where this is going to take us. There is a future for this, no question about it. But the question is, is this being undertaken with the driver in mind uh, with the with the vehicle, the individual vehicle owner, or is it uh, being pursued for some other purpose?
1: Before I let you go, I want to make sure we talk some about suppliers. They're always a big uh, component, uh, pardon the pun, a uh, big component of the uh, discussions up in uh, Traverse City, up at MBS. Uh, we heard from a lot of big suppliers grappling with major changes to the supply chain, Especially for you know batteries and an and an EV type of market, Panasonic and Denso in particular, denso, I think said they're they're actually trying to encourage their mechanical engineers to become more uh, electrical engineers or or software engineers. Are they just doing that because it's very difficult to find the software engineers and electrical engineers you need?
3: Yes, that is exactly why they're doing it it's It's just hugely difficult task right now to find enough engineers to do all the things that the industry needs to do in a hurry. This is not a normal era for the auto industry. This is not simply people looking, companies looking to increase capacity or step up line speed. This is an industry that is building itself over, creating new plants to do new things that haven't been done before and to enter into vehicles uh that have been developed to operate differently than have ever operated before you're talking about EVs there's there is no history really of mass production of EVs across the United States and suddenly you hear the hammering of of construction all over the country of of battery plants and new assembly lines uh, for vehicles that are coming out of R and D uh, and, proving grounds. And they, we, <laughs> there just aren't enough engineers to go around. And what's interesting is that you look at Denzo. I mean, it was interesting conversation to have with Denzo because they are a powerhouse global company, but even they are smaller in their needs than the Detroit three, for example, but down the food chain, there are smaller companies, companies that. Perform critical functions in the auto industry, but even you know they need 50 uh, software engineers at this company or 25 uh, mechatronics engineers at that company, and they're having to compete with the likes of Denso and Forvia, Ford and General Motors. So it's it's a it's a tough hiring market right now.
1: Lindsey Chapel, Automotive News Editor Extraordinaire, thanks for joining me today.
3: Glad to be here anytime.
1: Lindsey Chappell is an editor at Automotive News. You can find his story about automotive forecasting on the front page of our latest print edition or at autonews.com. That's Daily Drive for today, I'm Jamie Butters. And I'm Kellen Walker. Thanks to Automotive News coordinating producer, Jake Neer, for
2: his help on today's podcast. You can get the latest news on industry forecasting, earnings results,
1: and everything happening in the auto industry at autonews.com. Come back tomorrow for a look at the first half EV registration numbers. If you enjoy the podcast, remember to like, leave a review, and subscribe so you never miss an episode.